The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Many of our programs have been dealing with compliance archaeology, which is sort of the backbone of why archaeology gets done in the United States. And as in many other parts of the world, there is legislation and there are technical guidelines that mandate the application of archaeological excavations or in a broader sense cultural resources investigations in the interests of mitigating the effects of construction projects and as many of you know because we've had numerous uh, programs on this type of uh, compliance uh, trajectory that these types of regulatory situations essentially account for most of the archaeological findings across the world, really. And in the United States, uh, the programs of cultural resources organization and the compliance trajectory generally is is a pretty sophisticated one, um, and it is related to Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, of 1966 with modifications thereof. However, uh, on a state basis, there are many twists and turns, if you will, for what requires uh, archaeological investigations. If it's a national project, for example, then it would go under a federal review. But if it is not necessarily part of a national undertaking or federal undertaking, then the states step in. Uh, The various programs in the states uh, in general, are uh, quite sophisticated, and they involved a variety. They involve a variety of different types of approaches to projects that often include federal involvement. Sometimes they don't. And uh, one of the uh, state agencies that's very frequently used in such situations is departments of transportation. Now, the state of Iowa is uh, one of the more advanced. Uh, has one of the more advanced programs in state archaeology, and we want to use that as an example of how state compliance requirements are set into motion. We'll we'll talk about a number of projects that fall under that purview, and my guest today 
is a cultural resource project manager and archaeologist for the Iowa Department of Transportation, and this is Brennan Dolan, who does a lot of uh, work in the northern part of the state. He has worked uh, for the State Historic Preservation Office in Iowa, and we will talk about that a little bit as well, as well as there are several uh, private private companies, which, as many of you know and as we've discussed, are the... the uh, institutions that in many cases actually undertake the work, although the departments of transportation very often perform their own work as well. Uh, Brennan's research interests include the proto-historic period, faunal analysis, uh, experimental ceramic replication of the woodland period, and uh, site preservation and a variety of other sub-themes. He has worked on projects that span the identification and uh, evaluation of sites as well as mitigation, and these are the sequential processes of actually investigating sites that are related to the relative importance of those sites as far as the archaeological record is concerned. And uh, we will be discussing how state programs work and what their relationships are to both federal and specifically state uh, state ventures uh, as the program goes along. Brennan, thanks very much for appearing on the program. You bet, Joe. Happy to do it. Brennan, tell us a little bit about your office and tell us how the Department of Transportation gets involved in archaeological projects. Uh, sure. As you mentioned um, in your introduction, uh, a lot of states do things differently. Uh, some of our neighboring states have larger staffs where they do a lot of their own work. We're certainly on the smaller side of things. Um, there's three people who do what I do, including myself, and we break the state up um, into transportation districts. Each one of us manage two of those. Um, for the majority of the work we do, particularly the larger surveys and the larger investigations, a lot of that is done by consultants, as you mentioned in your introduction. Um, we do do a little bit of work in-house, particularly in scenarios where we need to be nimble, um, where we have a short timeline we're dealing with, or, um, you know, um, in the feared case that uh, construction is already underway and something popped up um, in, in terms of an inadvertent discovery, uh, you know, where we need to be out there, that's, that's really uh, kind of where um, our bread and butter is at. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, we're definitely on one of those states that have a business model uh, built on few staff and rely on the expertise and the availability of uh, the consulting community. We run four um, open-end uh, contracts for statewide work, um, ranging from architectural evaluation all the way through phase one, phase two, phase three archaeology. Um, and then uh, we do a little bit of in-house work along with um, other things like our statewide uh, management of sites um, in areas that are uh, managed or owned in the name of the state. Brennan, tell me a little bit about the uh, what you just talked about earlier, which I think is very, very important, and and one of the real challenges that we always have to deal with, which is monitoring and sudden and the discovery of of uh, finds over the course of a construction project. Obviously, in your case, as the name indicates, your DOT Department of Transportation, you're involved with roads and road road improvement situations. What would happen? 
in the case of an unanticipated finding? And how do you go about setting up a program for working in that type of situation? Use an example if you wish. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I've got a fairly recent example from uh, Western Iowa um, where, uh, interestingly enough, it was a non-federal uh, project um, where we had uh, fairly um, good evidence that we had resources underneath the roadway. And this was just a simple uh, pave, pavement replacement project, so not lots of new right-of-way, not a bypass, not something like that. Um, however, there was uh, some new sanitary I'm sorry, storm sewer work going on underneath the pavement replacement. And interestingly enough, what we had there was a uh, historic steam system, which uh, for a fairly small rural western Iowa town uh, is not a resource that we run into very often. So we were kind of interested to know um, if the historic information, the written accounts uh, that we had come across, um, if if that resource was still there. And sure enough, in this case it was. Um, the inspector gave us a phone call. We were out there the next day, uh, mapped and documented GPS, photographed uh, the features that were present, and um, you know did what we could to collect what information was there. And uh, the project proceeded on the next day. So um, I would say in general in those scenarios, it's very much the case you know, that we work to do as much as we can, as quick as we can, without um, interrupting the project, um, you know, terribly or, or throwing the schedule off uh, by uh, a significant amount of time. Uh, but as you would guess, and as the listenership can probably imagine, that's largely dictated by the resource that's there. Um, you know, if we were uh, dealing with uh, significant and expansive prehistoric features, uh, that's going to take a lot more time. In this case, with this historic steam tunnel, uh, we had a pretty good idea what was there and where it was at. It was more of a case of documenting that um, and uh, providing a record, uh, n- knowing that that resource was going to be gone at the end of the day. You know, one one of the questions that I've had and 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 have encountered in the course of my own work is, and and, and I really need to get your perspective on this because I, I think it's one of those situations where um, people are really curious about it. And I'm speaking specifically about historic resources for which, let's say, there is some documentation. How often? Uh, do you have enough advance notice uh, so that you can actually go into the archives or you can go into your uh, resources uh, in association with, say, a highway improvement project or construction of a bypass and say, okay, we know that there is a feature here. There is a mm-hmm. historic structure, a Civil War structure, whatever it might be, and we know we're going to be there so we can really plan for doing that and we don't really have to stop anything or we have to minimally stop it, but we know in advance that uh, these are the types of, of uh works that we need to do, for example, documentation, measurements, uh mitigation if necessary. In most cases, would you say that there is adequate coordination between the uh, folks who are doing the actual highway improvement and um, the, the DOT when, they, when they're ready to actually undertake that work? Is, do you have a, enough advance notice in most cases, or do you have the, the, uh, the documentation at hand so that it doesn't become a sudden surprise? Well, I would say in general, yes. 
Um, our, our, our ideal schedule is that we're in front of that project between four and five years. Uh, so with this particular scenario that um, I referenced from Western Iowa, um, we had gotten a shred of evidence uh, from uh, the city. One of the um, maintenance managers from the city had mentioned that this resource was there. Uh, we took um, the better part of a year to dig into that as the project's developing, um, as the project is acquiring funding, uh, as the engineering is coming along. Um, so I would say in general, we do have fairly good lead time. That's not always the case. Um, you know, inadvertent discoveries do pop up. But I would say there's kind of a generational transition here, Joe, and, and that is um, – the peer group that I've worked with, some of the project managers I've worked under over the years, um, they're working into the project development process um, that maybe didn't happen the way it does today 20 years ago um, has changed quite a bit. So I, 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 I don't know that um, myself as kind of a second-generation cultural resource manager, I don't know that we deal with as many um, salvage type projects, as um, I've um, heard my predecessors tell stories about. Um, but I would say, in general, um, most of the projects we deal with, we do have fairly good lead time on. The exception to that would be, um, and particularly in a state like Iowa, where we're, um, we have a lot of bridges. I think we're second or third on the national list of number of bridges. Um, and as you may have seen at various times, particularly years like 2008, flooding um, can be a significant issue for us. And in those cases, we do deal with um, emergency projects, slide repairs, massive slumping, um, roadway failure um, sometimes, um, you know, where we're trying to do what we can for the resource, but yet also get the transportation facility up and going in as short of uh, time as possible. And we will be back and continue this uh, emerging, fascinating discussion on uh, Department of Transportation Archaeology with a special focus on the state of Iowa right after these messages. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Inside Out is the voice of the inner revolution that is bringing positive change to our planet. Discover the amazing transformations already taking place from faraway lands to right here under our noses. Meet guests who are shaking things up for the better and gain insights and courage to help you become all that you can be. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inside Out, The Inner Revolution airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are uh, having a special episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are discussing the role of uh, departments of transportation with a special focus on the state of Iowa in terms of state planning for uh, compliance and cultural resources projects and how uh, the DOT, Department of Transportation, inter. Uh, interacts with regulatory agencies, specifically with state historic preservation officers and in projects that have a broader scope and a more federal uh, emphasis because they will cross state lines uh, with, uh, with with federal regulatory officials as well, depending on, on uh, what the nature of the undertaking is. But uh, br- uh, my guest is Brennan uh, Dolan and uh, Brennan made a very, very intriguing point that goes to sort of the evolution of archaeological practice over the past 40 years, if you will, because our profession is really relatively young and, and we are now probably, as, as Brennan had indicated, we are already into essentially second generation archaeology on a very large scale. And I go back to that first generation where we sort of uh, did the trial and error kind of thing. Um, and we had talked in the break about the fact that the second generation of planners and uh, state archaeologists, according to Brennan, and, and I, I, I'd like him to talk about this, have essentially learned the lessons of the past and go in with a much more comprehensive understanding of what potential projects are. Uh, uh, what kind of snags potential projects may come up against. And, Brennan, take that with uh, and, and, and roll with it, if you will, if you talk about sort of the generational transition and how that translates into project planning. Sure. Well, um, as, as an archaeologist, um, um, kind of cutting my teeth uh, with state projects and then as I transition to the Park Service and then into the uh, private industry and, and eventually coming back to state work um, now uh, with the DOT. Um, you can't help but hear those stories over the years from the project managers and older archaeologists that you work with about, um, and, and Joe, I think you could probably share some of these. Um, you know, we all have those projects that were particularly difficult, and uh, my point uh, with, uh, you know, as, as I heard those stories from you know, kind of that first generation of cultural resource management professionals to where I'm at and a lot of my peers today is that I think a number of state agencies and federal agencies have learned the lessons of those years. And that first generation of cultural resource managers, in my opinion, did lots and lots of heavy lifting in terms of not only educating planners and, you know, for an organization like mine, engineers within that organization, um, but they did all the right things, you know, in terms of research and mitigation and turning um, information over to the public um, so the public can see the benefit of, you know, the use of those funds in learning about history and prehistory of a given area. Uh, Obviously, in my case, that's Iowa. Um, But in general, those those agencies, those organizations, those collective groups 
um, you know, we... Uh, we have what we call a cultural interchange team with our office um, and the State Historic Preservation Office and, and also Federal Highway. Um, and, you know, we, I get the benefit of, of those, those hard lessons learned 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, and as a result of that, I think we get to do better, um, more sensitive, appropriate, and, um, you know, kind of cost savings types of things today uh, that uh, some of my predecessors did not have the benefit of. One of the topics that we had talked about in the break, and it's it's a really critical one, especially where you are, of course, is bridge replacement projects, and those are the ones that really sort of fall under the purview of DOT. Um, and in your area, obviously, the big river uh, runs runs along the margin here. How do you deal with bridge replacement projects, especially in this era of of climate change, uh, global warming, and obviously accelerated flooding in, in various locations, but of course with the major trunk stream, the Mississippi River. Give us an example of, of uh, how you go about dealing with uh, bridge replacement studies on a large scale, which I would assume would involve the Mississippi, and on a smaller scale with trunk, stream, trunk sure. streams. Sure. Um, well, I think it's probably important to point out for the leadership or your readership, or listenership, excuse me, um, the number one variable we put into any model that we produce is oftentimes distance to water. Um, so bridge replacements are an interesting um, animal in and of themselves because they're, they're by nature close to water, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, oftentimes that's where the archaeology is at too. Uh, but we, I think, like a lot of our neighboring states, um, have some pretty advanced systems that deal with uh, bridge replacement projects on varying scales. Um, it's not unusual for us to look at upwards of five to 600 projects a year. Um, and there, there are years where that's been higher than that, uh, based on emergency work or, or largely, you know, flooding projects. Um, but the science has come a long way, um, for us. Um, and this is largely based on, uh, um, geoarchaeology that, um, has been a major component of research in Iowa for two, three decades. Um, we, we do have some, um, exclusions, some, um, tools built into our toolkit that enable us to look at a project, assess a soil package, look at disturbance. Um, LIDAR is one of those tools we use a lot. Um, and based on uh, the needs of the project, particularly if uh, right-of-way needs or easement needs are pretty minimal, there may in fact be no survey for that work. On the other hand, based on those same variables, soils, topography, uh, recorded resources in the area, uh, lack of disturbance, um, you know, we, we pound for pound, you know, we, we do quite a bit of survey for bridges. Um, and when you scale that up to some of the larger river valleys, and for us, the largest um, to the east, obviously, the Mississippi, and to the west, Missouri, um, normally on those bigger projects, um, you know, we deal with a myriad of resources. And I'm kind of gearing up for a larger bridge replacement right now where that is exactly the case. Uh, we've got an older river town with lots of historic resources. Uh, we've got a number of prehistoric resources um, documented around the uh, various alignments that we're looking at that span everything from uh, bivouac habitation site to you know something in order or on the lines of a village site. 
um, to earthworks, um, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in this case, uh, burial mound sites. Um, so it very much is uh, an assessment of scales, um, and then also assessing what project needs are, and um, you know just how expansive are those project needs, and if there's a resource there that we need to um, avoid, you know how can we pull those lines in and reduce you know what our footprint looks like. <clears throat> So you have you have these scenarios where uh, let's just let's just talk about the bridge replacement scenario where obviously as you said you know you have the bridge running running along uh, or crossing essentially floodplains terraces areas that are very sensitive cultural resources you know that either the damage has been done or there is an anticipation of say flooding on a very large scale above the level of a 50 or 100 year flood and then all of a sudden you have to go into planning and i again i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here but i want to look at your perspective on this you have the potential for uh, what we call in the profession stratified sites, sites where there are historic components overlying, say, prehistoric components. And in Iowa, you have complex sites that include all of those periods because you do have mound sites, you do have uh, complex um, multi-component prehistoric sites that would go from, say, archaic into woodland. And then, of course, you have historic components above that. How do you go ahead and do that? How do you plan for that? And, and, and how do you coincide and, and, and put, a, put a scope of work together? Well, um, as, as you mentioned in your question, um, you know, particularly um, in dealing with landforms where, where we have a pretty fair idea of what we're getting into, it really does start with good geoarchaeology. Um, you know, what does this landform sediment assemblage look like? What kind of potentials are we dealing with here? Um, you know, um, how does disturbance factor into this? And surprisingly enough, um, as, as I'm sure you know, Joe, particularly with your with some of the work you've done in the urban on the urban side of things, um, it's kind of beautiful what fills will do to an intact site sometime, um, and that gives us a lot of work a lot to work with. Um, but as I mentioned. All of these things occur at varying scales. Um, you know, some of the smaller rural bridge replacements where we have, um, you know, there, there's a lot of um, recent um, deposition around it, post-settlement alluvium. Um, we know through testing of other similar landforms within these same drainages and river valleys uh, that we don't have a lot of potential in that given location. And we may not do any survey in that location, all the way up to good geoarchaeology that's identifying um, various soils and, and deposits and potential within those uh, deposits, um, you know, that range, it can run the spectrum from, um, you know, end of the paleo period all the way up through historic, so. Right, and, and you have obviously uh, models that have already been developed by uh, certainly some of the geoarchaeologists in your area, and there's a number of them, um, that have essentially um, sort of developed um, models of landform history uh, and to some degree site expectation. And uh, they're able to sort of integrate the, uh, the nature of landscape change 
and archaeological site expectation based on the fact that certain types of a certain time frame will be associated with certain landforms of a time frame that were created and in, in which are documented historically. Um, and uh, historically meaning in terms of actually doing the archaeology over the course of these 20, 30, 40 years. Um, I guess one of the questions I would like to ask you is uh, something that we have been involved with uh, in 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 not well, I, I would say in the eastern U.S. more so. But you know, I was actually had worked in Iowa for many years in in, in the eighties. But how well coordinated are the planning? Is the planning for these types of situations? Can you actually commission a study that will, in advance of any destruction, develop a, a predict or some kind of a predictive model of how landforms and archaeological site expectations um, develop and can you use that as a model think about that uh, as we go into this break and we will pick up on that topic when we return stay tuned we'll be right back Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. The schizophrenia community faces tough challenges every day. The community includes individuals living with schizophrenia, their partners, parents, children, siblings, friends, neighbors, co workers, and also their providers of health care and social services. To hear Dr. Gordon Atherley introduce members of the schizophrenia community who are sharing their experiences, tune in to Schizophrenia Community Radio every week, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is uh, Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm back with my special guest, Brennan Dolan, who is a cultural resource project manager for the Iowa Department of Transportation. And we've been talking about sort of increasingly sophisticated models of archaeological expectation 
that are related to a familiarity with landforms and landform history so that when uh, there are bridge replacement projects, they can be looked at on a large scale based on a correlation between the age of a landform its burial and its associated with association with certain types of archaeological sites. Um, Brennan, we were talking during the break about how we use that advanced information, especially for uh, rivers, the big ones like the Mississippi and the Missouri and the Iowa River, to uh, develop models that are at least very reasonable in terms of site expectation and so that you know in advance not necessarily where sites will be how deep they will be but certainly give you sort of a ballpark idea of these types of site expectations based on uh, burial patterns uh, natural flooding regimes over the past five six seven thousand years and what these associations might be. Why don't you talk about that a little bit when you, to when you uh, uh, plan for bridge replacement studies, say, for the Mississippi, Missouri, or for the Iowa? Well, I think um, it's important to note that um, it, geoarchaeology investigation and, and, and project-specific investigation has really become part of kind of our standard practice. That's not to say, you know, you're going to open up any random investigation from, you know, the last five or ten years and you're going to find, uh, you know, specific uh, geoarchaeology or uh, um, uh, um, geomorph uh, chapter, but mm -hmm. increasingly, uh, particularly for our moderate to larger studies, that's absolutely a part of it. And I can say, as, as someone who's... Um, you know, manage that field work, it, it's very advantageous for me, um, who, you know, where my background is, is really in um, artifacts and the material record, to huh. have that geoarchaeology investigation with me in hand in the field to help me and the folks I'm working with, you know, l you know literally as we're out there digging and screening across the terrace or through a valley floor, you know, or... Um, you know, you name your um, complex uh, geomorph uh, landform, point bar, right. that kind of thing. Um, to have that in hand and, and, and at the same time to have the phone number of the uh, geoarchaeologist to call and say, hey, you know, we're seeing this redox, you know, down at 150, but, you know, we have something below it and that kind of thing and have those discussions um, to really get as much as we can out of um, you know, what is sometimes uh, limited field time, but, you know, to really get as much bang for the buck uh, as we can when we're out there. And, and having that um, project-specific investigation with us um, is really a great tool. And it's obviously, it's a planning tool that sort of helps you outline your strategies and, in a sense, design a program that will go on for several years so that, you know, if you do have a bridge replacement somewhere else up the system, it's not going to be like reinventing the wheel. You know what your soil sediment packages are and, and, and what your corresponding antiquity of, a, of an archaeological component are so that you actually have a baseline for looking at site expectation and uh, sort of integrating these various elements of uh, site expectation and landform history and it's not done in a vacuum. That's correct. And being able to draw those commonalities between one project 
um, and another project that's not too far down the road, um, no pun intended for my line of work, um, right. is is really, um, you know, it, it not only does it take the guesswork out of it, but I think it allows us to do our job much better, you know, just as, no different as, than any advanced tool that we get in, in, in any line of work. And ultimately, I assume it's more cost effective. Absolutely. So you run across that as well. Tell us a little bit about this uh, beer ice cave project that uh, we have been discussing sort of with uh, with my assistant. She was saying, this is something you want to talk about. Go ahead. Yeah, well, this was, um, uh, interestingly enough, it landed on my desk a year ago today. So I guess this is an appropriate anniversary for anniversary, right. this little project. Um, but in fact, it's not a project at all. Um, one of our uh, bridge maintenance inspectors was out, um, as you would suspect, you know, around various facilities that we have. Um, you know, we get sinkholes from time to time, erosion, that kind of thing. Um, and they oftentimes have um, uh, a small uh, wire camera that they'll send down to their sinkhole just to know how big it is, that kind of thing. And I got an email um, in the afternoon uh, saying, hey, we had an inspector out, uh, he sent the camera down the hole, and lo and behold, um, when he turned it on, there appeared to be some kind of arch stonework down, um, not at the bottom of the hole, but as he put the camera at the bottom and looked up, uh, there you know, was this complex stonework. Um, and basically, I had an email that said, you know, could you look into this and let us know what you think this was? So um, one of the things that's really changed archaeology as a business, particularly cultural resource management, even in the um, relatively short timeline that I've been around, um, is the availability of um, historic records that are now electronic. Um, uh, various systems that you might be able to log into with a password or uh, historic atlases, those kinds of things that, um, you know, oftentimes universities or colleges will keep in their digital collections or state museums. Um, so this particular location was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is adjacent to the Cedar River. Um, mm -hmm. And, in fact, kind of an old oxbow of the Cedar River called Cedar Lake. And when I geo-referenced that point um, onto some of the historic atlases that I had pulled down, what became pretty clear is that um, the point was located in um, what was identified in an 1890s map and, as, and also into the 19-teens, 1913 specifically, um, uh, the Magnus Brewery that was in Cedar Rapids. Um, so I was able to shoot an email back uh, later that afternoon before I went home uh, saying that I think probably what we've got here is some kind of a beer cave or beer cellar or ice cellar, um, you know, that hasn't been entirely filled in. Um, and from there, the project kind of took uh, took legs and ran off um, in a number of directions, um, which I can talk about if you'd like. If you want me, yeah, yeah. I, first, yeah. give me an idea what the, what this is. I'm sure a number of the listeners don't know exactly sure. what beer um, ice beer? cave is. Beer brewing history um, is really kind of fascinating, um, you know, if, if you get a chance to dive into it. But Iowa, like um, you know, most of your states and particularly most of our neighboring states, um, as a lot of immigration is coming to the West, particularly uh, those of German and um, French and um, English and Irish uh, background, uh, beer brewing is coming with that immigration. And one of the things that comes with the brewing, obviously, is the development of facilities. Um, and so 
it's it, typically, and I'm not a I'm not a beer historian or a or a beer cave historian by any means, but um, typically what you see at these early breweries, and we're talking 1850s, 1860s, pretty early uh, for Iowa, um, is a cave or cavern system uh, built into underlying bedrock, oftentimes on a bluff edge or adjacent to um, uh, water that can be used for ice in the winter. Um, the cave or cavern or cellar um, is cut. It's kind of a cut and cover method where the cavern is excavated into the existing bedrock and then the bedrock that was taken out uh, for the floor or the sides is used. And in this particular case, it was a voussoir arch method um, used um, to arch the stonework back over top. And then these caves or cellars uh, not only stored beer uh, prior to refrigeration, but they stored massive amounts of ice from the winter throughout the rest of the year to keep beer cool. Um, so in a nutshell, they were they were kind of, um, you know, one of those uh, primary needs for a beer brewer um, was this ability to store ice uh, prior to refrigeration, obviously. And what we had identified with um, this uh, bridge inspection was the um, intact remains of one of these um, caverns or caves or cellars um, from the Magnus Brewery, um, which um, probably dates to around 1859. And by 1870, uh, this brewery is documented as the largest brewery west of the Mississippi. Um, so a pretty substantial uh, brewing operation and a four-story building above uh, these caves or cellars. Um, so a really kind of interesting uh, immigrant brewing history that comes with it. Um, wow. And if you want, I can talk about the individual specifically, but um, here today that facility uh, lies underneath one of our major roadways that runs through Cedar Rapids. So uh, very substantial structure, and it's, and it's you know, held up for uh, pretty significant amount of time. But let let me get back to the landscape of it. So sure. it is a natural cavern, and um, was the brewery designed sort of around the cavern? I mean, how, do, how does this? Well, um, probably in this case, it was an exposed limestone bluff, and that's my assessment. I don't I don't have anything to base that off. But knowing the landscape in in this part of Iowa, adjacent to the Cedar River, um, this was you. Know, a, a, a limestone outcropping, I'm guessing, or mm-hmm. or limestone very near the surface, and the cavern um, was excavated into the limestone, and then the limestone that came out, and I should say, um, these things probably measure about 20 foot in width, and mm-hmm. any you know probably 10 to 12 feet in height at the top of the arch in the middle, with uh, fairly gradual sloping sides. Um, so that stone that came out to excavate the floor, or the base of the cellar or the cavern, was then um, um, formed up using wooden forms, and then this dry-laid voussoir arch method is used to build um, the roof over top. And then the, the brewery itself is built on top of the caves or the caverns using uh, typical construction. In this case, um, it was some fairly highly regarded uh, limestone from a, uh, from a not-too-distant quarry for the, for the actual building itself. 
where the brewing took place. And so I guess my question on that is that was the design, what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of a situation? Was it, uh, was it that the brewers or the, uh, the, the folks who opened up the brewery said, hey, you know what, let's look at, look at this particular landscape and, and said, this is a perfect site for a brewery, or did they actually construct it first and then say, my God, look what we fell into here? No, I think I think the the former is 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 probably how these things took place. Right, that's what um, I'm You guess. know, it's this is the ideal place to do it. You know, we've got a population center here. Um, right. You know, we're going to be able to sell some beer, that kind of thing. But it's these these uh, these early breweries, and and I should say this is the third, um, the second one of these cave cellars that we've hit with highway construction, or you know, they're immediately adjacent to the road that we built in this case. And the third, um, if you include some other brewery history that we had for an enhancement project from Northeast Iowa. So um, even within the state, um, there's kind of a growing um, history of uh, transportation-related brewery uh, history. But I think you're absolutely right. Um, these, these places were picked, at, especially early on, for the landform that they sat on, which is not entirely different than most of the archaeology we do, and tying back to the modeling discussion that we had earlier, right? Um, it you know it it location location location. That's that's what archaeology is all about, right? Just like real estate. We I always be tell back. the realtors that they stole that from archaeologists. <laughs> I know. We'll be back with with our fascinating discussion um, on. Uh, DOT, Department of Transportation Archaeology, with Brennan Dolan after these words. Don't leave. We'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you love to travel? Now, that's a silly question, isn't it? Who doesn't love to travel? Join Lindsay T. Boyd, a.k.a. The Dreamweaver, for Travel Time. A professional travel agent, Lindsay will spotlight the world of travel, from maps and other travel tools to make your trips easier, to your rights as a passenger, to different aspects of travel, such as sports, faith, or experiential vacations. Travel Time with Lindsay T. Boyd, Dreamweaver, airs live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein with a uh, special program today discussing um, <clears throat> state archaeological project with a, a focus on Iowa and how the infrastructure of, of archaeology and cultural resources in one of the more sophisticated states in the country, and I'm, I mean that, Iowa has always been in the forefront of a lot of um, progressive ideas on education and, and, and culture generally, and their archaeological organization is really one of the, the best in the country. And uh, we've been talking to uh, Brennan Dolan, who works for the Department of Transportation, and we're talking about the types of projects that the Department of Transportation uh, undertakes and and how they go about using consultants, advisors, and how they feed into the regulatory environment based on the types of work that they do. Uh, Brandon, one of the really interesting issues that sort of emerged, and you brought it up at the break here, is that DOT is very clearly sort of logistically placed in a situation where they're going to come across very major archaeological sites and cultural resources because of location, location, location. You run your roads where city centers are, where people are, where rivers are, and of course those are the locations which have centers of population now and had them in the past. And so uh, the likelihood of hitting archaeological resources, resources is far from random and is almost an expectation. And uh, I guess the story of uh, what we had talked about in terms of first-in-generation archaeology is that as we become more sophisticated in understanding these relationships between people and landscape, we also get more sophisticated in the methods that we do. So let's, let's pick up again with the, uh, with the ice beer cave uh, that you've done. Once you come across, give us a little bit of information on how the project actually uh, came into fruition, and what kind of steps you're taking sure. to, um, to to actually re- recover data, and 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 how you go ahead with it. Sure. Well, as you might guess, you know, anytime we have a sinkhole, um, there's oftentimes stability concerns that uh, come up. Um, you know, with a transportation facility, whether it's a bridge or a road or a culvert or something like that, that's something we have to take very seriously. Uh, so my uh, reaction, you know, we tried to be as swift as we could. Um, I had a conversation with our consultant. Um, in this case, we had um, the Highway Archaeology Program at the Office of the State Archaeologist who had some prior experience um, with beer caves um, uh, from Dubuque, Iowa, Dubuque County. And um, I was on the phone with uh, those guys the next day, and um, they were in the field to begin. It was kind of a combination archaeological, architectural history investigation right from day one. Um, But, uh, you know, they were up there and able to, you know, complete an an intensive in-field investigation of what were there in terms of resources right off the bat. So that all happened in August. And by September, I had a report um, 
that had a fairly comprehensive history built into it about um, you know the names and the family connected to the brewery, uh, but that also you know what we think of as kind of our typical field approach, all the way down to uh, handheld probe um, and um, documenting um, the information that was there um, that also had a um, ground penetrating radar component to the investigation where we had identified some voids. So over the span of about three weeks, we went from, you know, my best guess at the end of a long day to my manager saying, I think it's a beer cave <laughs> to <laughs> a, a, a comprehensive um, architectural archaeological investigation that laid out the history for us had um, you know was able to talk to some local historians, which is also a very important component of any historic research we do um, you know through advanced methods like ground penetrating radar um, that really kind of painted the picture for us. We did opt um, to continue with some additional geophysical investigation. Uh, later last year, um, and that was a two-instrument survey with electromagnetics and electrical resistivity um, that further kind of helped us identify the orientation of the caverns or the cellars, the caves, whatever you want to call them, um, as well as the length of these, because there's some there's some pretty um, uh, significant discrepancies between the historical data about how many of these are there, anywhere you know from a handful up to close to a dozen between uh, this Magnus Brewery and the Williams Brewery that sat right next door to it. Uh, we do have some um, construction information from the 70s where we hit one of these and it was opened. Um, there's a beautiful picture in the Gazette uh, showing the construction of these. Um, right. As someone with an interest in architectural history, you know, it's it's a gorgeous picture to help you identify the resource. Um, you know, as someone who's a little biased towards historic preservation, it's you know it's sad to see that go. But we certainly know a lot more about uh, these this resource and and this beer brewing history as a result of our more recent investigation. Um, I personally uh, was planning to do some lidar mapping uh, with our handheld unit uh, of the cave. Uh, this uh, early this summer in June, um, but sadly, the entrance had slumped closed, um, ah. so it's no longer accessible. I was all uh, gung-ho to get our new LiDAR unit in there and, and you know, have a gorgeous uh, 3D map, but uh, that just wasn't in the cards. So, interestingly enough, uh, this particular cave sits preserved underneath the facility after uh, some pretty um, substantial structural analysis. Um, none of our engineers had concerns, you know, that we would see uh, failing facility in the area. Obviously, it's something we'll continue to watch with a close eye. But um, the sinkhole was filled, and and the resource itself uh, remains as it was. So, kind of an interesting history, but um, a maintenance project and and not um, a 106 undertaking. So, kind of one of those gray areas for us where, um, you know, we have a process we follow, and we followed a very similar process for something that doesn't receive any federal funding. That's right, and you're obviously going to have to keep an eye on this as you go ahead and you deal with the road maintenance issues. And, that's correct. That's we it. moved it into our statewide historical sites management plan. Uh, we've got about 500 sites in there. Um, we're still trying to roll that out and, in terms of finishing off the final draft, but um, it'll it'll be another one of those areas that we watch with a close eye. 
Well, uh, you know, we just have a couple of minutes left. I, I just want to um, express my thanks to uh, Brennan Dolan, and uh, I, I want to marvel as well as the level of sophistication that has actually been uh, extended in our profession because of much more uh, careful understanding of relationships between um, archaeological sites and landscapes. And uh, the fact is that over the course of the past 20, 30 years, planning has become a much more sophisticated art and science because of the type of work that people in your office and, and in DOTs all over the country are doing. And I think it's a testament to... Uh, to the progress that we're making scientifically. And I want to thank you very much, Brennan, for being part of the program. And I wish you all the success in the future for getting us into this level of sophistication in which we can uh, recover and preserve our cultural resources going forward. Thanks very much for appearing on the program. Well, hey, you bet. And I would be uh, off base if I didn't you know, thank you and your peer groups as that first generation of cultural resource managers who did lots and lots of heavy lifting, you know, that, that has made things certainly easier and, 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 you know, stream much more streamlined for me and, you know, has delivered me personally with a very rewarding profession. So I want to say thanks to all those folks in your listenership. Well, thanks very much. And, uh, we will be back with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology uh, next week. And thanks so much, and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.